So, how do we get AI right? Well, we need the right volume of data, the software to train it, and massive compute power, or... Another one bites the dust. Are you ready? Hey, are you ready for this? Are you hanging on the edge of your seat? But with HPE GreenLake, we get access to supercomputing to power AI at the scale we need, helping generate better insights. All right! Nice teamwork, guys. Search HPE GreenLake. This is Money Beat from the Wall Street Journal. Everything you need to know about money and the markets, and then some. Welcome to the Money Beat podcast. Paul Vigna, Stephen Grosser here with you. And we are joined today. We have a special guest with us uh, for you folks out there today. Satyajit Das is a writer and a, a banker. Several decades in the banking industry, worked on the buy side, the sell side, a bunch of different firms. Uh, has written a couple of books. In 2006, he wrote one called Traders, Guns, and Money, followed that up in, I think it was 2012, with a book called Extreme Money. And now in 2016, he has his new book, The Age of Stagnation. Das, how are you? Good to be with you. You know, there's a funny story about the name Age of Stagnation. The book was published in Australia originally under the title A Banquet of Consequences, which comes from Robert Louis Stevenson, who once said that everybody at some stage has to sit down to a banquet of consequences. But the U.S. publisher thought that sounded too much like a cookbook. So we went with the age of stagnation. That's, that's too bad, actually. Not, not that either title is bad, but a uh, banquet of consequences. That's, that's rich. It's rich. I like the, the imagery there. Uh, look, let, let's, let's, uh, let me ask you one question. This is something you address in the book, certainly, uh, but I want to get to it. Why can't we grow anymore? I mean, we certainly have growth. Uh, do we not have the right kinds of growth, and, and why can't we get them? I think there's two separate issues, why we need to grow and why we not grow. Mm -hmm. The reason we need growth is not really very clear to me, but it's been a way in which we've basically kept improving living standards, which is a very laudable objective, but also avoids a very difficult issue, which is if the economy doesn't grow very quickly, one of the crucial things is whatever there is, you have to redistribute if everybody's living standards actually have to improve, which in different societies creates different tensions. But the other thing about growth now, which is crucial, is the world has an enormous body of debt, and I would argue that it's probably not sustainable. Mm -hmm. And if it's not sustainable, then how do you reduce that debt? And there's really only three ways to do it. One is growth, one is inflation, and the other is default. And basically, default doesn't really make everybody very happy. We haven't got inflation, and that's why we need growth. And inflation and growth are linked because what we really need is nominal growth. And let me explain what I mean by that. Roughly the world debt is, give or take, three, three times GDP. How many so times, times did you say you said three times? Three times, 300%. Three times. Yeah. So if you assume interest rates are on average around about 3% globally, that means you need 9%, 3% of 300% of nominal growth every year if you're going to service that debt. Mm -hmm. And so inflation and growth go together because nominal growth is obviously inflation plus real rates of growth. So we need this growth just to be able to maintain our ability to service this debt and if we grow above that, obviously we can reduce it. That's why growth has become such a topic du jour. That's the first thing. The second mm -hmm. thing is much more interesting, which is why do we grow? And I think there's a lot of theories around that. But to me, there's really three factors which basically drive growth. One is population. People seem to have lost sight of the fact that in the 20th century, the population of the earth doubled twice. Mm 
And with more people, they eat, they basically drink, they basically go and entertain themselves, they right, have right. shelter, they have children. By that clothes, creates an enormous by cars. amount of growth. Yeah. And in the 21st century, the population of the world is not going to double even once. So that actually detracts from growth. And we have all the related problems of aging populations and healthcare and aged care costs. So that's not going to be where growth comes from. The second area is basically new markets and trade. And if you actually look at the history of the world from the 17th, 18th century onwards, we firstly colonized different countries, brought them into the trading system. And more recently, after 1989, we brought the communist economies of Russia, Eastern Europe, China, India, all became part out of the global trading system. But today, other than North Korea, almost everybody's part of the global trading system. So we're not going to get that much impetus. And you will have noticed that one of the very interesting dynamics going on at the moment is global trade has started to shrink. And historically, global trade growth has been double GDP growth. And the most interesting thing is why that's happening. And one of the things I think is a very important and underestimated factor is people are just closing their borders in different ways. And we're seeing that in Europe in one sense with immigration. But you're seeing that in terms of people becoming very inward looking. And we're going to see that, for instance, in China, that basically they close their borders, become a much more closed economy. And the U.S. to a large extent is a closed economy anyway. So we're not going to get growth from new markets or trade necessarily at the same rate we did before which leaves the third one, which is productivity and innovation. And I think there is a debate going on between whether or not we can innovate and improve productivity. Now, I think Robert Gordon, who wrote this uh, new book on growth, is largely correct, which is the Industrial Revolution, too, was far more significant than anything else in terms of innovation. I'll give you a very simple example. The internal combustion engine in motor cars revolutionized transport because what went before it were animal power, human power, wind power. So this is just an incremental jump, but more important than that is what it creates. There's an automobile industry. There are all the parts suppliers, all the material suppliers. It's the petroleum industry. It's how you distribute petroleum. It's roads. But all of the innovations we're talking about now actually destroy jobs. They actually make us more efficient, but don't create these vast new industries, at least not at this stage. And that creates a huge problem in terms of how we grow, because the world is 60 to 70 percent consumption in developed markets. So if you don't have employment growth and better jobs, better income, it's hard to see the economy growing. And the last one that we can grow with is debt and financialization. But the problem is that's a very short-term fix, because all debt does is accelerate consumption and investment. But the problem is, A, you've got to pay it back. And if what you've invested in doesn't give you the cash flow, the earnings, in other words, it's not productive investment, which is what economists love to call multipliers, then essentially it's not going to create growth. So if you look at all of four of those, there are enormous problems in terms of seeing whether they can return growth to the levels we expect. But the other element of that is there are some other headwinds as well, one of which is resource constraints. Looking at resource constraints is interesting because we always talk about energy. But let's talk about something we normally don't talk about, which is water and food. If you look at water, we need the equivalent of a new Rhine River every year just to meet our increasing water needs. 
Similarly, in food, there's roughly 3.4 billion acres under cultivation. That hasn't changed for 30 or 40 years. Crop yields have not been improving at the rate we achieved in, say, 50, 60 years ago. And so we now face some interesting challenges because we have to increase food production by about 50% in the next 20 or 30 years just to meet the population increase, but also people's changing dietary habits because in emerging markets, as people get richer, they like to consume more protein rather than basic grains. So all of these factors, together with the one that's unmentionable, which is obviously environmental constraints that we have, so that, that all of that has conspired at the same time to actually place constraints on growth. And I think policymakers are grappling with that in some shape or form. Yeah. Uh, that was a hugely comprehensive answer to, to that question. It was a good answer. It was a good answer, but... Uh... It was really that was that was something. Well, I mean, yeah, you sort ahead. of laid out like you know, so what, why we're not growing, but yeah, we didn't get into also one of the things that sort of is playing a role uh, right now, and that sort of that the policymakers are sort of uh, you know, in, I mean, lawmakers have abdicated, I think you know, somewhat their responsibility to help stimulate growth, and, and we've all been leaning on the central banks. You have. You know, we've had three rounds of QE in in this country. You have now uh, over 20 percent of the world uh, GDP is now uh, has negative rates is right. under central banks um, that have negative rates. Can you talk a little bit about that? Like, the you know, oh. and, and the the limits of, I guess, monetary policy in stimulating growth? I'll tell you a funny story. I once met a central banker many, many years ago, and we were talking about policymaking. And one of the things that really struck me about what he said to me was he said, we have very little control over anything. We understand very little. Our tools are very limited. And at the end, we really can't do that much. Wow. Well, was that an off-the-record conversation? Uh, oh, it definitely was an off-the-record conversation. Well, yeah, yeah, then, gonna... he said, then I said to him, then what's your job? He said, to take credit <laughs> for when things go right. But even you hear and, even central bankers now admitting that their that their tools are not you know they're sort of like blunt instruments in trying to look. I think they're not it's part efficient. of a very deep seated problem, and the deep seated problem is these issues that we've identified are really fundamental, and they don't have the sort of financial engineering fixes, which is what most policies are, which is you know run a bit of a deficit, cut interest rates, do a bit of QE, and all those sort. Of of things. These are not. These are structural issues. And we're hitting a constraint of, it's like a finite system. We're hitting the edges of that finite system. <laughs> and the other thing underlying that is because of these problems are so deep and ingrained, what everybody wants to do is play a game of pushing the problems into the future, right. which is kicking the can down the road and extending and pretending. And if you actually look at what central banks are doing, all of their policies are designed to just put the problems further down the track. So, in fact, I would argue that they're actually not dealing with the basic issues, which, as you correctly point out, they can't actually deal with. But there's a very interesting subtext to this as well, because to some extent, policymakers have sort of embraced the magic, and they basically think that they're all powerful. And essentially, what they're doing is actually perpetuating a very dangerous myth. And which is actually what financial asset prices around the world have built on since 2009, which is everybody believes or has chosen to believe that basically these people will bring about growth and inflation and everything will be all right. And the danger here is 
problems. And the danger is actually playing out now is people are looking at these people and saying, A, the policy tools are inadequate. B, they don't work. And I'll give you a classic example of not working. You know, you have negative interest rates in Europe and you have negative interest rates in Japan. The whole aim of that policy, in my view, is to weaken the euro and the yen for competitive reasons. Right. Sure. The problem is it's not working. Both the euro and the yen have actually rallied after the last announcements of, right. in one case, actual negative interest rates, the other potential further cuts in interest rates. So these policies aren't working, but there's also a real danger, which is not economic, but social and political. And that danger revolves around a very simple thing. And this is around negative interest rates. We can play all sorts of games around negative interest rates, but ultimately the only way they'll work, and I don't think they work anyway, but is if you confiscate the ability or prevent people from actually taking the money out of the bank. Now look at the contradictions. If they take money out of the banks, the banking system which actually relies on those deposits to fund itself, can't lend. And the whole point of mm -hmm. negative interest rates is to actually increase credit. So it doesn't actually work. But the most important thing is you start to get into very repressive policies reminiscent of command economies of Eastern Europe and China. And that has social and political implications. And the most interesting thing is the debate is now very much in play about banning of cash. And it's being put in terms of all sorts of very elegant arguments, you know, like, right, right. oh, it's more efficient. Oh, you know, criminals and terrorists use 500 euro notes. All of that is actually disingenuous. The real reason was laid out by Andrew Haldane, who's the head of the Bank of England's economics department. He said, look, in the next crisis, we're going to have to cut rates. Rates are low, so they'll have to go into massively negative territory. And JP Morgan have con rates of between minus one and minus five. And under those circumstances, we can't have people taking money out of the bank. So what we're going to do is we're just going to ban cash. Hmm. But that has political implications. And the central bankers think they're politically very savvy. I don't think they are. And I think once you start to play around with these sorts of social and political issues, I think you put more than economics in play. You put the political system, the social system, the liberties of individuals, and that's a very dangerous way to play. Wow. Uh, but let's, 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 let's take a break there because we have to take a break. Uh, we are talking to Satyajit Das, who is the author of The Age of Stagnation. We'll be back on the other side of this. Hi, this is Jason Gay, and I have a podcast called Free For All. It's not just sports. We'll also talk about some music, some culture, some fashion. I could talk about fashion. Become a subscriber on iTunes and check us out at wsj.com slash podcast. WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously. Now, Money Beat. Welcome back, Paul Vigna, Stephen Grosser, here with the author Satyajit Das, who has written a new book, The Age of Stagnation. And I cut Steve Grosser off just before there because we had to take a break. So, uh, Grosser, I'll let you back in. Well, it just uh, what you were discussing and what you were talking about speaks to me about the inefficiency of, of the monetary policy. How I mean, you're not the central banks can't control what people do. We saw that they lowered interest rates. The whole idea was to get companies spending money, which would, you know, uh, get them hiring people. Um, that didn't work. They they took their money. They did buybacks. They did, you know, M&A. Um, they hoarded, you know, it on, on their well, balance Well, there was no sheets. real demand because people didn't have money out there to spend. Because they weren't so, raising, you know, they weren't hiring. They weren't raising right. rates. 
but it speaks to me like the you know the, so this inefficiency that the monetary policy has, and now they're going to negative interest rates, hoping that that will cause you know people instead of you know keeping money, you know keeping the the banks keeping money on um, they'll, that they'll go out and lend it. But if there's no one to lend to, it, well, you know, I think the question too, and I want to ask you this, Doss, is I mean, are they doing this because they have a real idea of what it is going to produce, exactly. or are they doing it because they simply have no other choice but to do something? Last time I looked, central bankers have to get into their trousers one leg at a time, like you and me. <laughs> I think we actually ascribe great powers to them, but I basically don't think. They actually had any choice. They don't have any tools left. Yeah, yeah. And having taken on this rule, a role of actually propping up the economy, and now having gotten in so deep, which is everybody's relying on them. Plus, if they actually turn around now and say, "Well, actually, the emperor has no clothes, and we don't know what we're doing," basically, asset prices would collapse. So right. it's just okay, one of those things you get into and you can't get out of. I have been saying since 2013. That all this was fun and games, but the thing that they everybody actually needed to think about is how you, you exit these policies. And as we've seen with the Fed's attempts to push up interest rates, it's not so easy to get out of that. I always thought that it wasn't courageous to implement these policies. It was going to be really courageous to withdraw right. these methamphetamines. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Winston Churchill once said something which speaks very clearly to me about that. He said, no matter how beautiful the strategy, one should occasionally look at the results. <laughs> you know, in, in the book, you you mentioned a couple of things. One of the things you, you talked about is, and I wrote this down on my notes, I wanted to specifically get at this. And these are two separate things, but I think they go together. Uh, you, you talked about time wasted and changes that should have been made were not made. And then you also, at one point, you talk about debt in terms of being essentially a pyramid scheme. So have we been... Have we, we as we as people, have we been fooled into uh, into buying into policies that were never going to work? And have we wasted time? And what needs to be done right now? Well, I think fundamentally, the point that I was making is there's nothing wrong with the low interest rate policies, the QEs, but they just bought you a bit of time. Mm-hmm. And in that period, you had to really do a major restructuring. And the restructuring had to be of how we bring down the debt. And clearly, you had to write off a heck of a lot of debt. It's like looking at Greece. Greece is never going to be able to pay back this debt. And Japan's never going to be able to pay back its debt. So it's pointless trying to pretend that you are. So you have to work out a way to reduce that debt and then deal with the aftermath. Instead of which, we assumed this was the fix and we just could go back to whatever we did. But you also have to change human expectations because the real problem here is people on average actually are richer now than they've ever been. Not everybody, but on average they're richer. And also they have expectations of what they can get out of entitlements and everything else, which are way, way out of whack with what is affordable. I'll give you an example of what I mean by that. Every generation post-war has paid on average less in taxes than they've got back in entitlements. Now, that's just not sustainable. Hmm. It, it just simply is not sustainable. And so everybody had to rein in their requirements and expectations, but instead of which we all basically, you know, that old saying that when things go tough, the tough go shopping. So basically <laughs> we just avoided all of that. So it's kind of this strange conspiracy between people who don't want to know politicians who like to pander 
to what people want rather than what they need. And at the same time, a political system which is completely dysfunctional. And there's nothing new about this. Manker Olson, in The Logic of Collective Action, identified this several decades ago, which is liberal democracies get into a stage where there are large lobby groups and large sort of economic constituencies which just lobby for their own interests. Ultimately, they offset each other and nothing actually gets done, which is what we find in many, many countries. One question I have is how do you, you know, essentially pay down the debt and also stimulate and try to get the economy going again at the same time? Because that seems to be the conundrum that every region of the world has faced uh, since the financial crisis. Well, I think you can't do it without some impact on growth. It's a question of how you manage the damage. And to some extent, I think the only way you really can do that is to take a lot of short-term pain for some long-term gain. The example that I always use is that it's like a body which has been afflicted by cancer. And you take the cancer out, you bombard yourself with basically poisons in the form of radio chemotherapy, and you try to kill everything. And to be honest, you don't feel real good for a while there. But if the treatment works, you come back and hopefully you uh, go into remission and you recover. But you have to take that pain. But we have become a society and a political culture which just believes we never have to actually suffer. You know, in the old days, you know, love meant never having to say sorry. <laughs> Politics these days never ma- having to make a hard decision. Right. Uh, this is the Money Beat Podcast. Paul Vini and Stephen Grosser. We're talking with Satyajit Das, who's down in Australia talking to us via Skype. I want to let you folks know that. Hey, I, I wanted to ask you Assuming, let, let's say some. Listen, we have we have the most educated, best v- listenership in uh, the world of podcasts anywhere. But well, let's assume you're Obvious. just a, yeah. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. You're very top notch folks. But let's assume you're an average person out there, maybe an investor, maybe not. You know, you're just a, the proverbial working class stiff. What are you supposed to do today for yourself to secure your own future? I mean, how are you supposed to respond in a world where the, the central banks are trapped into policies that they don't really think work with. They have no choice. Politicians refuse to make us as a group face up to what has to happen. What is the prescription for the ordinary person? Well, let's look at what's going to happen. And one of the things is this debt is not never going to be paid back. Mm-hmm. It's going to, and the best way it is to drag out the write-off over a long period of time, which is reduce wealth, but not immediately, but over a long period of time. And that's actually already happening. The second thing is job insecurity is going to grow because you don't have growth. Your wages aren't going to grow as much as they have in the past because there's no inflation and no growth. Buying things like houses will get more uh, difficult, particularly uh, if you don't have the high incomes or live in cities, for instance, which are expensive. Then there is the question of retirement. I don't think most people are going to be able to afford to retire. That becomes much more optional which was the mm. case probably pre-World War II. And the last thing is your children will not necessarily have an improved lifestyle. Hopefully, with some luck, they will have a reasonable lifestyle. But the key thing here is to adjust your expectations, is to say, okay, this is what we have to live with and we're going to work through it. And you can see people's resilience in doing that during conditions of war, during conditions of crisis, during all sorts of things people can adjust. We need to adjust that because without that adjustment, you know, you become completely depressed because you can't actually do anything. Right. And the other thing is if you're an individual, you need to 
basically drive home to your political uh, masters that these are problems that you recognize and they need to actually have sensible policies. Mm-hmm. Now, the interesting thing is I was listening to Stephen Schwartzman, who's the head of CEO of Blackstone, talk at Davos, and he expressed complete confusion as to why people were turning to, on the Republican side to Donald Trump and on the Democrat mm-hmm. side to Bernie Sanders. And he was just completely bemused. And the reality is people are turning to those people because they're desperate and they're very concerned. And I think it shows that ordinary people have this fear and politicians need to actually understand that and adjust, reset the system and expectations and try to do what they can. And if everybody works together and everybody takes a little bit of pair and we share the pain in a way which doesn't destroy the fabric of our society, then there is a chance that we can muddle through this, okay? But the other thing is if we don't do that, there is a horrible precedent, which is in the 1920s and 1930s. And A.J.P. Taylor, who was the great historian of that period, wrote that what actually happened during that period was the middle classes were destroyed, their hopes were destroyed, and as a result of that, they basically, turn to the first populist demagogic leader who actually said that he would fix the problem with disastrous consequences. So I think people need to adjust their expectations and push very hard to try to slowly adjust the system. You you saw... Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, you say muddle through, but you also (laughs) created quite a list of, you you know, sort of troubles that we face. Um, you know, how much, I mean, how realistic is it for us to sort of really muddle through this? Look, I think uh, I, I have three scenarios. The first one is the Lazarus economy, where everything, you know, we wake up tomorrow and somehow <laughs> miraculously everything goes back to normal. I like that one. Which I think yeah. is a low probability event, right. given the, as you say. But, the but it's the one you want the things. most. <laughs> Sorry? It's the one you want the most because it's the least pain. You know, the funny thing about life is uh, an American writer called Flannery O'Connor once said, the truth doesn't much change based on your ability to stomach it. <laughs> so, right, right. <laughs> we'd like to do that. But the right. second one, I think, is the most likely scenario, which is what I call stag- the age of stagnation, which is basically we keep pumping money in, we keep basically doing this stuff, and we use political repression and economic repression to try to keep the system together. And you can see this actually happening. You can see almost the propaganda about banning cash. And in Japan, do you know that a whole bunch of press people were fired because they questioned whether Abenomics was working, which is quite extraordinary in terms of that. So we muddle through that, but it's a very repressive process. And there's no, chance, there's no guarantee of success. But what I really fear is the third scenario, that this all comes apart. And then you have, and we are seeing signs of that, which is really disturbing. And the volatility we saw in the early part of this year hints at that the fact that everybody loses faith, realizes the game is up. And it's like a game of musical chairs. Everybody wants to find a seat. And then you trigger a financial crisis. But that's not the real issue. But what that does is destroy the banking system, which we're starting to see problems in both China and Europe. And then that flows into the real economy, and then it becomes very difficult to manage. And to be honest, I don't know which one of those three scenarios are going to play out. But the one thing I would say is people keep looking for historical parallels, comparing it to, say, 2008 
and I think actually 97, 98, because of the emerging market dimension is more relevant. But the crucial thing is this time it will be different because firstly, all the mechanisms, all the airbags, if you like, like fiscal capacity, like monetary policy flexibility is gone. Mm. So we don't have that flexibility. The second thing, which is really quite difficult this time, is the problems are bigger. We've actually made the problems bigger. The third issue is all our institutions are basically going to essentially, nobody's going to have faith in them anymore. And the last issue is the geopolitical situation is much weaker. And one I forgot to mention, which is last time around, the emerging markets were doing quite well. Places like China, India, Brazil were doing well, but they're not doing so well. So if the wheels fall off, it's going to be very ugly. And, you know, those kind of movies don't have happy endings. No. Uh, You know, it's the kind of thing where I've heard this one saying a lot lot of many times, you know, that, you know, the conditions for the avalanche are always present. You never know which pebble is going to be the one that starts the avalanche. It could happen. It could not happen. I think the the, the point you make is very is very true. The, the conditions are there. Whether or not it happens, it's just a matter of it is something completely uncontrollable and completely unpredictable. What is just going to which pebble is going to fall and, and start the avalanche rolling? And that's kind of a scary thing to think about. And, and to be honest, none of us can ever guarantee that those events aren't going to happen. Right. But generally, if you're a good policymaker, a good individual planner, what you try to do is make sure you minimize the risks yeah. in terms of not getting yourself into that position. But unfortunately, we've got ourselves into that position, which makes it difficult. There's an old Irish joke when you know somebody turns up at a farm looking for directions to somewhere and the Irishman says to him, if you were going there, I wouldn't start from here. And it's a bit like that now. So yeah. we have to muddle through from where we are. We don't have a choice. Right. All right. Uh, we're going to have to wrap it there. We could talk for a lot longer. Das, I want to thank you for coming on today. I really appreciate it. It's my great pleasure, and thank you for thank inviting you. me. Yeah. Uh, his name is Satya Jadas. The Age of Stagnation is the book. Everyone, I want to thank you for listening, and we will be back uh, We'll be back later this week. We might have some before Friday. We might have another one. We're, we're angling. We're angling to drop one on you, everybody. So uh, we'll talk then. This message comes from Viking committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com.